Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi, guys. Dr. Santosh here, your neighborhood-friendly infectious disease doctor and researcher. And this is Praz the Salmon, unlocking the most spontaneous and unscripted areas of your brain through the radio waves. (laughs) You are not kidding, Praz. We are going completely off script for what is practically a live episode. Little to no prep. Oh yeah, baby. Can you feel the spontaneity? Can you feel it? Can you feel it rippling down your corpuscles? So spontaneous, I'm ready to combust right here. I I will tell you, listening audience, I am not comfortable with any of this. (laughs) And that's the best part of it all. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I have to agree 100% with the Sandman. I'm so happy that Josh is uncomfortable right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's very rarely that this happens. It's amazing. I spent so long working on show notes, and then we do an episode where let's just throw all preparation aside and run helter-skelter for the hills and talk about anything. Ugh, bunch of savages. (laughs) Guys, we're going to have an awesome time. Uh, there was supposed to be like a, a riffing topic, wasn't there, Josh? At least there's some structure. To kind of celebrate what is almost a one-year anniversary of uh, Proz the Sandman joining the cast, I figured we would do an episode on anesthesia. So that's going to be kind of the riffing topic of surgery and anesthesia. And then I realized we've done two episodes on anesthesia One, directly about the history of anesthesia when waking up is hard to do. Give it a listen. And another about the history of chloroform and gases in the crime world, gas chrematography. In all fairness, you can never really have too many episodes about anesthesia. Am I right, guys? (laughs) Of course, they're already asleep. See? (laughs) 
But I know everyone had stuff that they wanted to kind of talk about and riff on. So why don't we get started, see where it goes, and keep in mind, listening audience, although this podcast will be edited for a little bit of content, I have no idea what anyone's going to say, and it's just making me very nervous. Rubber baby monkey basket. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so pros. Uh, why don't you start by inducting us into what the hell is it you actually do as an anesthesiologist? It's nice that I have a chance to be here in all honesty and be, I guess, the spokesperson for my specialty. Because I feel like anesthesia, anesthesiology is a field that's not only just very poorly understood by, by the general public, but also very much misunderstood by most other healthcare specialties. An anesthesiologist's job is primarily to assist a surgeon or some proceduralist into completing a procedure while keeping their patient safe and comfortable. There's three goals that I have when I go into any procedure. First and foremost, of course, is patient safety. I have to keep my patients safe and alive. And second, keeping them comfortable and allowing them to tolerate the procedure. And third of all, facilitating the procedure for whoever it is that may be doing that procedure. So we consider all these things when we come up with your plan for anesthesia and we take pretty much everything into account. So what I'm hearing is leave no witnesses or at least none who can speak Mm -hmm. and make sure that the patient Uh. is very happy for a given definition of happy. And, And that reminds me of the earliest written reference to anesthesia, which is uh, St. Hilary of Poliers. And he wrote, and he said, the soul can be lulled to sleep by drugs, which can overcome the pain and produce in the mind a death-like forgetfulness of its power and sense. So you really are producing comfort by making sure that the person has no idea what's going on. It's interesting. This sentence actually is fascinating. As a medical student, one of the first attendings I had on my anesthesia session essentially described general anesthesia as a state of, quote, reversible brain death. But yes, you're right. You lull them. You essentially, like, take away all of their primary brain functions. Now, I know you use gas, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but there were older methods of anesthesia that are actually appropriate even to your nickname, Sandman, because... Really? Well, are you saying he threw sand in people's face? Praz, are you going around throwing sand in people's faces? Not while they're awake. That's what's important. (laughs) (laughs) Not while they're awake. Oh, God. Disclaimer, I've never thrown sand in anyone's face. It's not that there was magic sleep dust being sprinkled over people's eyes. The reference to Mr. Sandman is basically uh, somebody taking what is essentially a sack filled with dirt and whacking someone on the head into unconsciousness. The method was known as cerebral concussion, used in the 17th century by the Italians, and they would place a wooden bowl over the head of the patient and strike it until the patient became unconscious. There you go, right? See? That's so much more poetic than when they do it on, like, crime shows and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking of a much greater scholar in our modern time I'm, of course, talking about, you know, the, the great poet LL Cool J, who said, Mama say knock you out, I'm going to knock you out. And then he would lick his lips and take his shirt off, and then you'd knock out. 
I I keep telling everyone, sometimes they play music in the OR. I'm waiting for the day when that song plays as I'm putting someone to sleep. That would be the greatest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so apropos. I'm going to knock you out. What? Can't you see it? Wouldn't that be so soothing right before you're going for like, your heart I mean, surgery? Or that or Metallica. Off to never, never right, land. Fine. I guess I could... <laughs> I guess we can make some wiggle room there. I can I can imagine your patient waking up and was like, "Oh, that was so painless, but I cannot get LL Cool J out of my head right now." And uh, nor will they ever get the sign of me rapping out of their head ever again. Crazy. Uh, have you ever heard of hypnosurgery? Is planting. Um, like uh, suggestions, subliminal suggestions as they drift off. I've heard of it. I've never And this is, of course, it. where the anesthesia is provided via hypnosis instead of chemicals. The only occasion of it I can think of was in an episode of Scrubs where it uh, didn't pan out too well. Yes. As far as you know, have they actually experimented with this in real well, life? Well, of course. was in the Victorian era. The mm. surgeon James Braid... <laughs> And he was very impressed just by Harold Mesmer, who invented mesmerism. And he attended a public performance on it, on magnetism and mesmerism. And Braid is like, you know, this would be great for surgical pain management. But the very first case of hypnosis as an anesthetic in surgery was on a woman's breast while she was under the influence of hypnosis to remove a tumor. But I don't have any other records aside from that brief one, so I don't know how it went. And it's entirely possible the guy doing it, not even a surgeon. He's just like, you do not feel any of this. Nothing's going on. <laughs> well, that's where it comes mesmerized. from, is, is uh, Harold Mesmer. Oh, sorry, Frank. Frank Mesmer. Oh, okay. So mesmerizing is, is actually Frank Mesmer. Oh, for Harold was his lesser known brother. <laughs> so yeah yeah so there's um there's another one here um the the bbc recently reported that the guinean singer so a, a singer from guinea alama conte sang through her surgery in order to protect her voice actually she was given local anesthesia <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say, what kind of surgery did she actually have? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it was it was on the the neck and the throat, but she was given uh, uh, it was parathyroid surgery for operating or removing the parathyroid glands. She said she sang through it, and I didn't need anesthesia, but actually, she was given local anesthetics. Okay, so kind of like a dental procedure. They numbed the area, but she was well, completely conscious. Sure, sure, sure. But but I don't. I think that's cheating, isn't it? That's not quite hypno. Or... Well, hypnosurgery, true hypnosurgery, uh, which is, you know, there are scattered case reports here and there, is not just having, you know, a, a magician snap his fingers and make you think you're a chicken. Instead, it's it's having six or seven previous to the surgery sessions lasting an hour of hypnotherapy. So each session focuses on controlling the pain and relaxing the mind. And it's basically a guided meditation in the weeks leading up to surgery training yourself so then when you do get that magic chicken word you drift off so it's it's accustoming your body in stages it's not like pros would just walk in with his mallet and go okay you have a choice between drugs 
a really suggestive word, or the hammer. I can see why most people might choose the uh, first option. But let's drift away from, from anesthesia just for a moment. And Santosh, I know you've been on at me all week about a brand new surgery that for some odd reason I can't imagine you seem to think I would find fascinating. <laughs> he knows you too well. <laughs> oh, I don't, you know, it's only that we've talked about this, you know, five different times on this podcast. A vet got a penis transplant. Like an animal doctor? No. <laughs> the animal or the doctor who treats animals? No, no, no. A, a, a veteran, an army veteran. The poor, the poor guy stepped on an improvised explosive device, an IED. With his penis? <laughs> Oh, God damn you to hell. No, he didn't step on it with his penis. He stepped on it with his feet and everything from the waist down got blown off. (laughs) It was, I mean, we shouldn't laugh about it. It was a horrible, horrible thing. Oh, my God. We have to stop laughing about it. It's a hell of a (laughs) blast. But I can't now. As soon as you say that, it just makes us laugh no, no, no. This is the coolest thing. So he had prosthetic legs and he could walk, right? He would be hanging around with other military veterans and they'd be talking like they usually did. You know, these were other disabled vets and they had had, you know, encounters that caused various disabilities. And they said, oh man, this, this injury though, if I lost my bits and pieces, I'd kill myself. And this guy, this poor guy was sitting here going, yeah, I guess I know, you know, and because he actually suffered through it, you know. Um, So his penis and his testicles also got destroyed in this blast and he didn't know what to say. Um, And he actually said, according to the New York Times, it's a lonely injury Um, because there were a lot of guys, you know, there's battle tested dudes who could talk about I lost my legs or I lost an arm. But it was a very scary, private, and intimate thing to say, oh, you know, I've, I've lost, um, you know, my penis and testicle. And then he went over to Johns Hopkins. Um, they talked about reconstructive surgery to actually, like, make a penis out of his own tissue, possibly from the form inside of his skin. Don't. Don't you dare. <laughs> ah! <laughs> I see. <laughs> Too easy, Santa. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I gotta hand it to you. They use this foreskin? No, no uh, forearm skin. Stop it. So the, uh, <laughs> this procedure was appealing, but Dr. Reddit also mentioned um, you could uh, get a transplant. So there was an exhaustive training, uh, screening process that was accomplished. They had to look for a donor who had the nerves, the blood vessels intact, along with the urethra. He had to put through some psychological screening to say, hey, you're going to be taking anti-rejection medicine. There's going to be some physical therapy involved. It's going to take a long time. Um, and then uh, he got... What kind of physical therapy would they do for that? Well, no, 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 because you're—it's part of the abdominal wall as well. Oh, okay. Cake, uh, pros, kegels, kegels. <laughs> no, actually. Of course. No, no, no. I am, I am dead serious. Like that would basically be uh, the. It would. That's the equivalent of what they would do for physical therapy, and we've covered that because this is not the first time we've talked about a penis transplant. 
No, it's not. And uh, in this case, um, you know, they they got a, he got a call from New England Donor Donor Services, and said, you know, this person who's doing the donation um, is giving away parts of his body. And um, the donor was from another state. And so Dr. Reddit, the original guy who suggested the forearm reconstruction thing, and Dr. Damon Cooney and Gerald Brandanker flew over New England. They did the procedure. Get this, guys. Um, There were 25 people in the operating room. (laughs) 25? Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, part of his role, uh, part of the roles, okay, were to remove nine vertebrae from the donor to provide stem cells that the Hopkins team would infuse into the recipient to prevent rejection. And then what they did was they took out um, the part of the abdominal wall, the penis, and the scrotum into which there would be prosthetic implants for testicles. And then they hooked up the vasculature and the nerves closed uh, the abdominal wall with the brand new penis and scrotum and the uh, fake testicles in place and boom, transplanted penis. Now, there's a couple ethical issues that that come up with this. And ones I want to talk about before we let Proz kind of go into some of the, the surgical aspects of the case. One being in the previous penis transplant recipient, so not this gentleman, but the one who received only a penis, he did a little bit better because it was still largely a skin graft built from his uh, various bits. But if you recall, when we talked all the way back in the past about a face transplant, imagine the trauma of waking up, looking into the mirror and seeing, you know, somebody's face other than your own. And that can cause some psychological bits. Well, now, once you consider this boner from another donor and you look down and you see genitals that you know are not yours. And how is your significant other going to be affected by that? How are you going to be affected by that? And one of the ethical things is, you mentioned Santosh, they transplanted the scrotum, which is the sac, but not the testicles. And oh, of course, yeah, that would, that's kind of a much scarier thing. Because the testicles make sperm. So if they had been transplanted, the recipient would have had a another person's penis able to father children that would have been from the donor's genetic material. You could have little cadaver corpses from a living. Uh, No, no, (laughs) he's not going to make zombies. First of all, stop it. Second. No, no. Second of all, you have, uh, you have donor kind of um, stem cells in there. You know, they, you have, um, you know, pluripotent stem cells and, and other stem cells which can create spermatozoa in the testicles. And that would have been extremely reactogenic. It would have raised the chances of rejection much, much higher. <laughs> That's exactly how zombies start. But yeah, so this guy can't, you know, despite the fact that he now has working genitals, which is amazing, uh, he cannot father children. And if he had been able to, they would not have been his, even though all the equipment he's working with would have been physically attached to him. So that's why I said I just I like the the sound of the phrase boner from mm-hmm. another donor. Me too. Uh, I if that's not if that's not already trademarked, mm-hmm. I'd like to put that out there. Yeah, I think that's absolutely awesome. Um, I will say this. So we talked about a penis transplant 
that happened only twice before, right? So this was at Johns Hopkins uh, very recently. Before that, one in South Africa in 2014 and in 2016, who was a Boston man who was just the second penis transplant, uh, which who actually he lost his uh, penis to cancer. The estimate here is from 2001 to 2013, right? So there's 1,367 men, nearly all of them under the age of 35, who came back from the Middle East with genital injuries. So uh, we're talking about a lot of people, if this is successful, that, you know, they could have a a significant life-changing surgery if the Department of Defense can help out with their vets. It seems kind of like funny or goofy, but... You know, that part of you, if you if a surgeon can tell you that your penis or your scrotum, you know, that you can look like a mannequin for a lot of people, that can be really significant. Well, let's not get too gender normative, but like a lot of people do have their identity tied up in their genitals. Certainly, it's where men are often accused of keeping our brains. (laughs) Bring me the lower horn. (laughs) You were going to go Futurama. I just got there first. And as long as nobody starts trying to harvest it like rhino horns to... (laughs) But so, Pros, tell us, like, this is a 14-hour surgery trying to reconnect a lot of very small, not commenting on the genital size, just small veins and arteries and a very intricate thing and nerves... You know, how does that change your role? Are you paying more attention? Because this is not a by any stretch of the imagination, sure. a life-saving surgery. It's an identity. It's an identity-saving one. But nobody right. has to have a it's penis. It's more of a luxury uh, or very, as we, or as we call it, an elective surgery, very elective. Well, first of all, whenever we anesthetize anyone, we think about their, um, their overall state of health. From what you're describing to me, these people are all relatively young, relatively physically fit people who are chosen to protect our country. So I would imagine that they have very few health problems for me to worry about up front. This is opposed to somebody getting a kidney or liver or heart transplant who are usually quite sick. So I wouldn't be too worried about that. That actually makes my job easier. A very, very long surgery. The size what of the surgery doesn't matter. The length doesn't matter. It's, <laughs> it's what you do with it. I would say universally, if you're going to reconstruct someone's abdominal walls and perineum, including their penis, testicles, and whatever else is nearby, have to have this under general anesthesia. I couldn't see anyone giving nearly enough numbing medicine or local to be able to do this and have their patients sing during this surgery. The good thing is that because it's micro vessels, this isn't a surgery where I would imagine there'd be a huge amount of blood loss big changes in blood pressure, heart rates, need for transfusion or anything like that. That said, the time the patients get there in the morning, get into the operating room, and they've usually been fasting for seven to eight hours to begin with. Another 14 hours on top of that, we're talking about nearly a day when this patient hasn't had any sort of food or source of sugar, I guess, in their body. And so I'd be worried personally about their blood sugar levels getting very low. These patients getting dehydrated uh, because everybody loses fluid, especially during surgery. Along those lines, typically we measure urine output uh, by inserting a Foley catheter through the penis. 
since that's where they're operating, they'd have, probably have to find some other way to divert urine and give the patient a way to uh, eliminate waste. So that's a, a technical aspect that the surgeon would have to figure out. What is general anesthesia? What are the agents you're using and what do they do? I know one of them was derived from, you know, poison darts used in the Amazon. <laughs> I mean, not like you're sitting there in the operating room with a blowgun, although that would that be amazing. Would be. I would like to see you pass that on your board exam, just like a live board exam. <laughs> it's like, all right, Dr. Praz, your patient is prepped. Here's your blowgun. You need to load the door like this, blow with the velocity of exactly, yeah. Although, it would seem that um, this isn't entirely out of the realm of reality. Um, there are parts of the world that actually do this. I don't think there's a surgical operating theater where, I mean... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. They, they use curare to hunt and paralyze, uh, and it's derived, it's actually several different compounds, of one of which the most active is curare, which is produced by one of the poison toads. But to the best of my knowledge, I am unaware of blow darts being used for surgical purposes. Okay, yeah, there are. You're right. There's no operating rooms in um, in the Amazon, like you said. I'm just as know, disappointed as you. Too. But yes, you're right. We don't do this in the operating room, no. Although the use of curare is um, something that's really revolutionized how we practice anesthesia. One of the biggest things when you're doing surgery, essentially nobody wants to operate on a moving target. Surgeons don't like it. Patients don't like it. It typically doesn't end well for people. One of the biggest challenges we had for a while is how to get our patients to stop moving. And we did this by taking QRE derivatives and um, injecting them into our patients. The way these medications work, our muscles, when we move, we move through a communication that our, mus our nerves have with our muscles. And when the nerve meets the muscle at that space called the synapse, uh, they release a chemical called acetylcholine. And the acetylcholine leaves the nerve, binds to the muscle, and when it lands on the muscle through a series of um, chemical reactions and ion exchanges and whatnot, it essentially causes the muscle to twitch, and that's what allows us to move. Now, what curare and other paralytics do is that they block the acetylcholine receptors on the muscle. They bind to those receptors 
so that even though the nerve can still release that chemical, it can't really do anything to the muscle. So that effectively paralyzes you uh, for the duration of the surgery and allows the surgeon to operate much more easily and safely. So this has to be kind of taken into consideration, right? Because you're giving medication in order to help the person forget about the surgery and, you know, kind of forget about the pain. Um, But at the same time, you're paralyzing them. So if they are in pain, they can't really do or say anything. How do we resolve that? Correct. Correct. Anytime you paralyze anybody, um, they have to be under general anesthesia. This isn't, you can't give paralytics during like a twilight or a local anesthesia procedure where the patient's presumed to be breathing the entire time. Yeah, these patients have to be paralyzed with a breathing tube in. So even if they were awake, they really couldn't tell you much anyway. So what do you, what do you monitor in order to say, oh, their pain control is good? Primarily, we judge pain and level of anesthesia based on vital signs. In a patient who is not paralyzed, but under general anesthesia nonetheless, you might get this by the respiratory rate. The type of things that most people do when we're in pain. We tend to breathe faster, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up. Things that are so we don't really recognize, but that are always happening in our body. So typically, if I notice that a patient's heart rate is increased and their blood pressure is increased, especially in the context of the surgery, like, I watch what they're doing in the operating room. Typically, right when they make their first incision or the first cut is when I expect there to be a big rise in blood pressure or heart rate. I go ahead and treat and treat that. If I see those signs, I look to see what the surgeon's doing. Sometimes it's something painful. Other times there's other reasons that may happen, but I would treat that accordingly. How much of the patient do you actually see? Like, is are you just staring at their head? Are they covered by all the surgical fields? Are you looking at the surgeons, at the surgeons' faces? Like, you know, how are you gauging what's going on? Other, or are you just looking so, at monitors? In all honesty, it really depends on the surgery we're doing. Most of the time, we have access to the head and the airway, and we're just looking down on the field wherever they may be operating. Occasionally during, say, for example, brain surgery or ear, nose, and throat surgeries, uh, the head is tilted away and within the surgical field. So in those cases, we don't always get to see the parts of the body that we focus on. So looking at the field and seeing what's happening is a certainly a big part of what we do. Now, have you, I guess, what's your favorite kind of surgery to monitor? Well, um, I like doing open heart surgeries. Those are a lot of fun. Why? Why? I have to know what makes what makes it fun. Don't go breaking my heart. I I like that answer already. That's awesome, and I think I know why. But I want to hear your answer. Well, be careful with all your hearts. But um, open heart anesthesia, I should say, is the epitome of anesthesia. The two biggest areas of um, knowledge that we need to have are knowledge of physiology and pharmacology. And open heart surgery is the ultimate test of both of those things. From Cardiac physiology, understanding how the heart beats, understanding the different causes of blood pressure, all these different sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, reflexes and responses, in addition to the pharmacology of all the various medications that we have to give, various ways to treat, 
high and low blood pressure, bad functioning of the heart. It's just very cerebral, very inter- yes, cerebral, ironically enough, during heart surgery and not brain surgery. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. That's what the problem's been. Um, but that's what really makes it exciting for me. And just the fact that you do so many things that, I mean, we're, a lot of people wouldn't think were possible, you know? How do you feel about amputation surgeries, whether it's a uh, foot or hand or whole, whole limbs below the knee, above the knee? Are they more difficult? Are they pretty standard? From my end, an amputation surgery is relatively standard. The tricky part for me is that these patients are often very chronically ill. They are usually people who have long-standing high blood pressure, diabetes, kidney problems. Definitely require a little bit more attention and a little bit more um, screening as they go through it. How many surgeries do you monitor at once, or how many do you do? Do you go one surgery to the next? So, essentially, the way we most practices do it, each anesthesiologist is allowed to supervise up to four different surgeries at a time um, at any given moment. I, I did not think that was a number you were going to say. I was like, one, you do one. <laughs> well, okay, okay. I should also highlight the difference between supervision and, um, and direct participation. Now, if I'm doing the anesthetic myself, then yes, I'm only going to be doing one case at a time. Anesthesiologists work very closely with nurse anesthetists. And when we're working with nurse anesthetists, we do what's called medical direction or supervision, where we can staff up to four locations at a time. I could have four different nurse anesthetists doing four different cases, up to four different cases. And I'd be sort of standing at the crow's nest, for lack of a better word, and just sort of keeping an eye on things as I go along. You sort of like man the ship from your area. If the nurse has a problem, they'll give you a call and you come and address it as needed. Likewise, my nurse and the nurse and assistants I work with will be in the room. And if there's any major issues, um, they'll give me a call and I'll come check on them. Or usually I'll swing by every now and then just to make sure things are going smoothly and um, we'll go from there. Is there a hierarchy in which you get... Uh, you and the other surgeons get to enter and leave the room, like last one in, everybody has to wait for them, where you're like, well, now that everything's set up, I'll come in and whack them on the head. And A patient has to go through a series of checklists, essentially, before they can even go into the operating room. A lot of it is red tape, uh, to be perfectly honest. But uh, typically, the nurses who are in the operating room need to see the patient and verify several issues. I need to see the patient and get my do my evaluation, get their consent. The surgeon usually has done their consent and evaluation in an office, and they just need to come in, say hello, initial their sites and everything, and make sure there's no major changes in the patient's health since their evaluation. Now, the surgeon's actually usually one of the last people to go into the room, actually, and one of the first people to leave the room. One of the secrets that a lot of people don't realize about anesthesia is that a lot of times they're waiting for us to go back to the room. And one of the biggest, our biggest metrics are, is um, efficiency. They have what's called anesthesia delays where, oh, if patient's not back, anesthesia is slowing down the patient. Anesthesia's holding up the day and whatnot, essentially. Um, so just, just to put that out there, that if your anesthesiologist doesn't seem 
as personable or they seem like they're in a bit of a rush is because we have usually at least four or five other people breathing on our necks saying, hey, you need to go back there. It's time for us to go. We're waiting for you, etc." Um, that sounds stressful. It, yeah, it kind of sucks. And it would be nice if I could just sit there and have a conversation with everyone and just really – but especially if I'm doing three to four rooms and I have three different surgeons saying, hey, we need to go. We're ready for you. We're waiting and such. And especially since we're being judged and graded on that, um, we don't always get a chance to do that. So I apologize to all any patients who may have had, quote, bad experiences or felt that their anesthesiologist might have been – being rude or disengaged, but essentially that's why. I don't know. So I was just saying that's what we do. We just put them to sleep. Um, I make sure that their airway is secure and the patient is relatively stable. Put in any extra lines we may do. Sometimes we place an arterial line, a small IV in the artery to help us monitor continuous blood pressures. Sometimes I may place large IVs called central lines. But once everything's ready, then I'd usually head out, see my next case. Now, one of the things we know about anesthesia is that the gases make you forget things. They make you loopy. Uh, so what's the best question someone's ever asked you as they're waking up from anesthesia? Hmm. <laughs> They've asked me a lot of different questions. A lot of times I'll get, oh, did my surgery work? Did everything go okay? One time I had a patient who woke up and, you know, sometimes they're when the people wake up, their oxygen levels can be a little bit low. They're still breathing a little bit slowly. So I just tell her, I'd be like, man, go ahead and take some deep breaths. And she asked me, what's the reason for that? That's one of those, what is to be? What? Why must I be? Because it's a philosophical <laughs> question or a rhetorical one. Why must any <laughs> of us breathe, really? Like, poor, poor Sandman's up nights after this surgery going, she's right. Everything I've worked toward. Yeah. What is it all for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, I would love to see Praz just walk out of his room just in an existential crisis. Yeah. Just because a loopy patient woke up and said, Why do I breathe? <laughs> yeah. Does anyone really sleep during anesthesia? What? The answer is yes. Yes, they do. Yes, absolutely. So, Praz. You know, we've got this super long surgery like this one that I just talked about. You know, you're replacing abdominal wall and you're reattaching a penis and a scrotum in 14 hours. I know the surgeons, you know, 25 people in and out of the OR rotating in. You need a urologist and you need a neurologist. You need plastics in there and you need all these surgeons rotating in and out. What does an anesthesiologist do? Because, of course, it can't be good to be under general anesthesia for the patient, you know, for forever. But I'm assuming that by now you guys know how to modulate the drug and the dose and make sure that the patient's still safe while they're under. But, I mean, you guys must get fatigued. Um, and you, But you have to be, like, super vigilant during all this time in a major surgery in 14 hours while the patient is under you know, what do you guys do to make sure that you stay alert for a super long surgery like that and that you don't lose focus? It's a challenge. And I'll tell you personally, a lot of it comes from conditioning uh, through residency and whatnot. Like a big part of what we do as residents is 
tikkol. And aside from being a, a glorified hazing ritual, for lack of a better word, um, it essentially teaches us resilience. It teaches us to be able to still function and think while having to focus and be awake for long periods of time. There are some times, every now and then, where I've been in a room by myself doing open-heart surgeries that have gone upwards of like 10 to 12 hours, say, for example. And where now my colleagues will, at that point, typically during the day, they'll get me out in the morning for 15 minutes to take a break, or and then 30 minutes for lunchtime so I could eat something while somebody's in the room watching the patient. And maybe another 15 minutes or so in the afternoon, someone will come get me in for a break as well. But still, that's an hour's time within 14 hours that I'm actually getting to relax a little bit. The rest of the time, I'm pretty much having to be vigilant and having to be focused on the patient. We take turns. If somebody's on call, we try to make sure they get breaks. Sometimes a nurse anesthetist will be there, and if it's a long case overnight, I'll usually check in with them frequently and ask them if they need to get some time out to rest or do anything. And then, um, so we just try to like take turns and switch in and out and just do the best we can there, I guess. Pros, what tips or shortcuts have you discovered that make your job easier? Ooh, ooh. And also after you answer that question with the tips and shortcuts, um, I want to know, um, so this patient had to be under for like 12, 14 hours, right? Um, how long can a patient be under anesthesia and how long is it okay? But answer the tips and tricks. for me. So what tips and shortcuts help me get through a case? Is that what you're trying to say? Or okay, Let's say I'm the one in the room doing the case by myself and it's a long case and you're right. Like my mind's eventually going to like grow weary or as anybody's would. So, I mean, how do we do it? How do we go about, like, keeping our minds fresh? Um, well, a big part of it is knowing the surgical procedure, knowing what parts of it need your 100% attention and what parts of it where you could maybe, like, step back a little bit where you don't have to watch as much. One big example of this is doing open-heart surgery. Um, there's a period where patients go on what's called a heart-lung bypass machine, essentially. And there's a perfusionist who runs that machine. Now, most of what we do is support hemodynamics, such as blood pressure and heart rate, and support um, respiration, oxygen exchange, gas exchange, things like that through our ventilator. When patients are on bypass, the machine is essentially doing all of that for us. So during that time, we actually turn off our ventilator and turn off the drugs, and the patients don't really breathe, and you know they stop the heart while the surgeon does the surgery. While patients are on bypass, our involvement is fairly minimal, if I'm honest. So you can actually um, you can shift your attention depending on just given your experience. You know when you really need to focus in versus what you know, what your experience has told you is going to be a little bit more smooth sailing. Exactly, exactly. So that's one of the big things that I find really help during a lot of these procedures. Sometimes I'm in long procedures and we're not on cardiac bypass. It just happens to be a long procedure. And so for those, um, I mean, I try to watch their vital signs, do the best I can with it. Um, but a lot of it is also 
effective communications with our surgeons uh, to sort of figure out, hey, well, what do you guys um, have going on up there? Like, um, what do you guys anticipate having to do for this procedure? As far as how long a patient can be under general anesthesia, um, obviously the shorter the better. Um, I'm not aware of a specific hard upper limit as far as they cannot be anesthetized for more than, I don't know, 24 hours or whatever. I thought about that because, I mean, the general anesthetics that you're using, a lot of them are quite short-lived, right? Like the body metabolizes it pretty quickly if they're not getting getting it continuously. That's correct. The gas that we have breathe in, it goes to the brain, and then it circulates back into the venous system and it's breathed back out through the lungs. So it really only lasts as long as the gas is on. There's some few theoretical toxicities with some of these gases, but we really don't see it very often in practice. Um, so the longest case that I think I've known of in one of our institutions was when I was a resident and they did a 30-hour complex brain surgery. Theoretically, you could keep them anesthetized as long as you need to, and oftentimes you don't have a choice. You had to keep them down as long as they're going to be operated on. Man, the human body's pretty awesome. We can take like a knockout drug and inhale it, and then by the time we exhale it, unless we get more, we're like awake again. We just bounce back. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Finally, Praz, why anesthesia? This brings back memories to of uh, residency interviews. Gosh, nine years ago. Feels like just yesterday, doesn't it? We are getting old. Right? <laughs> Crazy how time flies. But um, I asked that question myself a lot, especially when I was trying to figure out what specialty I wanted to go into. My first real exposure to anesthesia was in third year of medical school. Prior to that, I hadn't even considered it as an option or as a specialty because, again, I knew very little of it. Um, but I think relatively early in my third year of medical school, the clinical years, I was on my OB rotation. And we do a lot of procedures in the operating room for OB and gynecology. And so that's when I actually started to see anesthesiologists. It was also, incidentally, when I realized I could never do OBGYN. No offense to my OBGYN colleagues who do very important work. Um, but it wasn't for me. And as I was in there doing the procedure, I looked over the curtain. And I looked back there at um, whoever it was, the anesthesiologist or the resident or CRNA or whoever may have been there. And I thought to myself, man, there's, um, there's certainly a lot more going back on back there than I initially realized. I mean, they have this big machine with all these special monitors and gadgets and gizmos back there. They have their special drug card with all these, like, various medications and tubes and all these, like, supplies back there. And this guy, whoever it was, I mean, they weren't just sitting around or reading a newspaper or playing crosswords, as many people would imagine. This guy was constantly going back and forth drawing up medications, giving things, charting different vital signs, paying attention to the monitors, looking at the field, seeing what was going on. And and it intrigued me, I should say. It made me realize there's a lot more to this than I realized. So I, during my surgery rotation later on, 
which I very much enjoyed, I took some time every now and then, if I wasn't scrubbed in, to talk to whoever was back there and learn a little bit more about it. Eventually, I did an anesthesia rotation, and I realized just um, how much really went into that, just how vigilant these people really were, and just how quickly things can de-escalate um, if you're not on top of your game and you're not paying attention and making sure things go okay. And it seemed stressful, sure, but it seemed very fascinating to me. Well, here I am. That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, as well as sources for where we researched this episode, of which I have none. I'm sorry. And... (laughs) our theme music is composed by rachel leisure the show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts and until next time as always happy travels happy travels everybody catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.